0: Welcome to the Testimony Podcast. People of faith telling the stories that matter from their lives. I'm your host, Andrew Chamberlain, and I'm delighted that you can join us for this conversation. You can subscribe to the Testimony Podcast on all of the major podcast distributors and follow us on Twitter at TestimonyCast. Hello and welcome to episode 32 of the Testimony Podcast. My guest for this episode is the writer, publisher and literary agent, Tony Collins. Tony has spent nearly 50 years working in the world of Christian publishing in the UK. He has worked for Hodder & Stoughton, Kingsway, Monarch, Lion hudson and SPCK. Over the course of his career, he has published at least 1,400 books and owned three magazines. And he is the recipient of a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Association of Christian Writers. In this episode, we talk about Tony's encounters with the spiritual experience of God and what it's like to encounter God in places where the culture and theology are very different from the one that we're used to. We talk about how these encounters challenge our beliefs and what they say about the longing within us to be in the presence of God, whatever the outside context is. We also talk about Tony's deep conviction about the care and stewardship of the earth And we discuss how we can both long for the spiritual home that is to come and also care deeply about and see the holiness in God's creation here and now. Towards the end of the conversation, we talk about Tony's work now as a literary agent. So just to let you know right up front, if you do want to pitch your Christian writing project to Tony, you can do so by contacting him by email at tonycollinsagent at gmail.com. is Tony's story. So Tony, welcome to the Testimony Podcast. It's great to have you as my guest today. Welcome. Thank you. So I want to start by asking you if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, childhood upbringing, some of the highlights, let's say, of your life. Okay.
1: I grew up in Sussex in, in, in England. I'm the single child of a couple of teachers, French, French teachers. And so we, we, we spoke French part-time at home, which was quite a, an education I have spent my life in, in publishing of Christian books, and that has been a joy. I've, I've worked with a number of, dis, of different companies, and I've, I've, I reckon that over the course of my working life, I've probably published about 1,400 Christian books. Wow! Apart from that, I'm a, I've also been a reader in the Church of England, so I've, I've preached many a sermon, and these days I'm a literary agent. Okay.
0: Now, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about perhaps two or three occasions in your life where you have felt that God has been close to you or Jesus has been like a close companion to you. Times of joy, times of difficulty could be either or both. Okay.
1: Well, let me start with one particular encounter because uh, this um, really marked me quite significantly. Some of your listeners may have come across the, the French Christian community called Taizé, and you've probably come across their music. And uh, back in the 1970s, my wife and I made a couple of stays at Tézé, which is in the Rhone Valley in, in, in southeastern France. And you need to imagine that their central church is actually a cavernous, semi-subterranean structure with very little lighting. Um, and so it is, it's mainly lit by candlelight. And we arrived there on the eve of the Celebration of the Bodily Assumption of the Virgin Mary. Now, I should explain that my background is, is evangelical. And so the, the bodily assumption of the Virgin Mary is not really a doctrine to which I subscribe. So I was not at all sure that I needed to participate in any of the festivities which are going on with this. But Teze is a, a very much a place of ecumenism and of crossing boundaries. And so I thought, well, you know, what harm can it actually do? And so I, I attended the, the, one of the key services, which was to do with this festival. And at the front of the, of the congregation, you need to imagine a church filled with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in semi-darkness. And at the front, there were t- lay, two huge icons were lying on the ground, um, in both of them six or eight feet high, in, in painted wood. One was an icon of the Virgin Mary, and the other was an icon of Christ on the cross. And you were invited to queue up before your chosen icon and then to kneel down, put your forehead to the icon mm-hmm. and to pray. So I thought, well, I mean, I can only be shot. So I, I joined the queue for, the, for the, the crucified Christ. And in the queue, I was standing there as I'm shuffling forward, moving very slowly. I thought, what am I going to pray? And so I constructed in my mind this really carefully nuanced, almost subtitled prayer with all of the appropriate hedging and buttery, which might have been suitable for a good evangelical on the verge of doing something rather Catholic. And I, so I finally got to the head of the queue and I took my turn and knelt down, put my forehead to the wood of the cross. And it was as if a trap door had opened in my mind and my mind was flooded with light and I could just hear the Lord laughing heartily and then saying, Tony, what do you think you're doing? Just come and enjoy me. And I just walked away from that moment, absolutely walking a foot off the ground, just feeling as though mm. my entire set, set of presuppositions and priorities had been completely swept aside and that this encounter was what the whole thing was about. And all of the, all of the, the, the doctrines and the constructs were, were secondary to this. And so that was, that was a really important moment. Mm. Okay, run the clock forward the, best, the, the better part of 50 years. About seven years ago, I undertook the Camino de Santiago. The, I walked the, the, the pilgrimage of St. James. The, I did the Camino, which is as, as, as it's called, which is a route between the French border at Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port and the city of Santiago, which is a, a route of about 490 miles across northern Spain, running from east to west. And I walked the whole distance carrying my pack. And um, this was a, an adventure in itself. And if people are sufficiently interested to explore this further, then I did actually write a book about it called Taking My God for a Walk. At any rate, there were two particular things which happened on that Camino which show um, uh, further adv- answers to your question. Because I had gone to look for sources of reverence, to find places where the, the wall between the spiritual and the, and the mundane were, were thin. Mm. places where you might possibly encounter something of the divine. And there were several pla- several things which happened, which I was quite taken aback by. One is that the, the Camino is um, features many shrines to people, usually to people who have died in the process of pilgrimage. The pilgrimage has been going on for over a thousand years, so it's, it has changed the infrastructure of northern Spain. And there are many, many shrines. And these places are often marked by pebbles or by photographs or by messages for coming pilgrims coming afterwards or by pieces of jewelry. And I found these um, shrines remarkably moving because they were, they were actually folk spirituality. You know, I think my younger evangelical and more snotty self would have rather dismissed them as no more than folk religion. But as, a, as an older and tiler Christian, I was actually prepared to see them as, as expressions of, of reaching out to the divine. And this particularly happened in relation to the Cruz de Ferro. The Cruz de Ferro, which is called, translates as the Iron Cross, is the highest point on the Camino. It's, it's, it's part of the mountains of, the, of that region. And it's, it's, uh, it's rather higher than Ben Nevis. You know, you are really talking your you're, you're will up into the sky. And I, I came across this uh, Cruz de Ferro at about eight o'clock one morning, uh, deep in the mist. And the tradition is that you take with you from your homeland a pebble to lay at the foot of the cross, of the the Iron Cross. And so I had a pebble with me from Hastings Beach, where I live, uh, which my stepdaughter, Hebe, had inscribed with the coquille Saint-Jacques, you know, the scallop shell, the the sign of the Camino. And so I had this with me, ready to lay lay at the foot of this cross. But when you get there, of course, this tradition has been going on for decades, for centuries. And so the, the site is not just a... A few little pebbles at the side of it, at the foot of a cross. It's it's tens of yards across. It's this enormous cairn of, of rubbish, basically, because people have left not just their pebbles, but also plastic toys and belts and pieces of jewelry and photographs and trinkets and romanticas of all kinds. And at one level, it's just a junk heap. But at another level entirely, it is a completely holy place because you have to get there, you have had to walk many, many miles. You can't get there on by car. And the, 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 the spot is, um, I, I think it is hallowed. It is a place where no matter what your background and what your status in life and what your aspirations for the future, you can pause and pray. And I, I stood there absolutely stock still in the swirling mist for about 10 minutes, just absolutely wordless. And then just to complete this narrative... When you get to Santiago Cathedral, in the crypt beneath the altar in Santiago Cathedral, there is a very special place. It is meant to be the, the resting place of St. James, which is a story where I, I won't go into now, but um, probably rather spurious. But there is, it is nevertheless, there is a sarcophagus. Mm. It is bathed in soft light, and there is a rail uh, where you can kneel. And bearing in mind that, um, again, basically I, you know, my skeptical self, I didn't really believe in the whole thing, but nevertheless, under the, the altar, that is a place of intense spirituality. It's a place which has absolutely been drenched in prayer for centuries. And no matter what the left and right and the, the facts of the matter are, the, the Holy Spirit was present. And so I knelt down and prayed. And it was this, as if that same trapdoor which had opened in my mind all those years ago in Teze, flung open again, the, in another burst of light, you know, and I, I mean... Uh, it, it is one of my joys in life to have given so much amusement to the Almighty. Um, <laughs> you know, he said, "Tony, what the dickens are you worried about? Just enjoy my presence. Just be part of this." And so uh, that was that was, uh, I think, a, a true encounter with mm. the divine. Mm.
0: I wonder why why you think it is that we so long for those moments. Of kind of transcendent contact with God, of experience of Him, of being in a hallowed space, you know, where being in those places, as you'd said, where the veil between the physical world and the spiritual world is thin. Why, why do we long for these places?
1: I think it is probably because it is meant to be our natural state. Mm. I think that we allow the, the besmirching of ordinary day to day reality to get in the way. We, uh, the, our ambitions and our fears and our hungers. Distract us. I mean, that is that is only the only answer the arts <clears> I can really give. But I will tell you about a more daily and much more quotidian kind of holiness which I've encountered. Mm. Before we started recording, I mentioned to you that I was a keen environmentalist, and in fact, I'm a member of the Green Party. And I have found a holiness in my work for environmental causes, which I had completely not expected. I found in in working t- to preserve the the the, the planet which the Lord made and which he declared to be good. I have found something of the divine in that. Mm. And I have never been at my, more comfortable than when I've been praying for my colleagues in the Green Party. And so yes, that that has been a, a completely a, a complete revelation. I wouldn't have expected it. I got involved out of conviction, but I have stayed yeah. out of delight.
0: I'm I'm struck by the two things which you've talked about there. You've talked about holy space and Coming into the presence of God and being encountering the spirit. So the, the spiritual world, which you say is has, has something there's something of that that is who we are, that's what we long for. But also a respect for and a reverence for an acknowledgement of the stewardship of the world,
1: mm-hmm.
0: a very physical place. So, how how do those two things work as they should together? How should we as, as children of God work with both of those things? I think that. It is appropriate to treat
1: the natural world as holy. The Lord made it and saw that it was good. And something of the divine is, 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 is available to, to, to the seeing eye in the created order. And if you lose your capacity for marvel, if you become indifferent to the created order, then
0: you are shutting your eyes to the divine. So there is something of, there is something of the divine in, in the physical world around us.
1: I'm increasingly coming to the view that you can see the fingerprints of God. Okay.
0: Are there any other instances that you can think of where uh, you feel as if God has been with you, perhaps in in difficult or trying times?
1: Yes. Okay. A little more background. For the first seven years of my working life, I was with Hodder and Stoughton, and I was looking after their religious publishing division by the end of that. And then I had the opportunity to meet a publisher from Brazil who was looking someone to take over his publishing operation in Brazil so that he could go and rescue another publishing company in France. And so basically, they were publishing Christian books in Brazil, in Portuguese. And my wife and I both were modern language graduates. Mm. And we thought this sounded like something of the Almighty. So we investigated it. And what it ultimately came down to was that we spent two years training at All Nations Christian College to go to Brazil. We left so I left my job. We had two young children at that point. And mm-hmm. so Jane and I undertook two years of missionary college training, just before we would due to graduate from the, the college with, with a good theological background under our belts by that point. It became apparent to us over a period of months that the development of our elder daughter was not happening, not not running as it should. By that point, she was almost four and she had almost no speech. She had been very late to walk. She was nearly two before she walked and her speech was very fragmented. And so we we took her to a variety of specialists who told us that basically she was a slow learner. She was at the bottom end of the, of the gene pool when it came to, uh, to, to, to development. So they said, Well, look, if you want us to, if you want, to, you expect her to develop a- adequate English speech, you have to keep her in, in an English speaking environment. And her godmother at that point stepped in and said, If you wish to, get, if you believe that the Lord is calling you to go to Brazil, then I'm going to honor that. And I would be willing to take your daughter from you and to raise her as my own child. And my wife and I were terribly grateful for that opera offer, but we. It, but it crystallized in our minds the fact that we simply couldn't do that. Mm. We could not make this mm. choice on behalf of our daughter, mm. and so um, we we abandoned our plans. We let people down, and we were. I was on the dole. I had not have a job. We'd finished college. All of our friends from college had moved off to beyond to go to the mission field, mm. and we we didn't know what to do next. And at that very low point in our lives, a postcard arrived from my former boss at Hodder's, who was a personal friend, who said, Tony, the Lord is no man's debtor. The Lord is no man's debtor. In the economy of heaven, nothing is wasted. And I believe that to be profoundly true, because ultimately, I did get a job in publishing. And I was able to put to you good use all my years of mission studies. Mm. And I have published... Dozens, if not hundreds, of books connected with Christian mission since then, which certainly would never have happened if I had not gone to all nations. And the the gentleman who ultimately took the, took up the job of running the publishing house in Brazil has made a spectacular success of it. He's he has been in post from all his working life, and he's you know the in the economy of heaven nothing is wasted. Mm. You know, mm. so you know the resources were put to to to, to fresh use.
0: I mean, I guess this touches on a number of issues which people, I think, struggle with. So there will be people listening to this who things have happened to them that they can't explain, things, things which they think God has called them in one direction, then it's all been seemingly ripped apart or, or you know, the rug has been pulled from under their feet, as it were. I know you, you've explained some of this or you, you've alluded to this in your answer, but how, how does one live with... An incomprehensible thing which seems to run counter to what one thinks one is being called to.
1: Okay, I'm not a pastor and neither am I a psychologist, um, but I can tell you how I do it, mm. which is 24 hours at a time. If you look at the world situation, uh, we're recording at a point where there is the imminent possibility of a third world war and climate change is upon us, the climate is changing, the sea levels are rising. If you live in a seaside town, as I do, and you are going to be aware of the possibility that there's going to be you know, many of the members of that community will not be able to insure their houses because of the the rising waters. You know, it, it's a grim situation, and if you if you choose to look at the the dark side of things, it can get you down. I choose to to work for the long term good of the community, and as far as my own personal sanity is concerned, to keep my boundaries operating on a twenty four hour cycle.
0: Okay, so. Don't worry about next year in a sense, I mean, in, in some ways, or don't be burdened by next year or, or 10 years time. It's, it's the next 24 hours, it's tomorrow and then the day
1: after. That's about right. I mean, let it drive you to prayer. Yes. Um, make, make worship part of your habit. And I think it's quite important to, in your prayers, to pray for the individuals whom the Lord has laid upon your heart. And that allows for a more eternal perspective to to invade your mind.
0: I want to come back to something that you briefly mentioned earlier on. In in what way have your your beliefs and your approach to your faith matured, do you think, over over the years? I have become much less
1: willing to condemn. Going back to the All Nations experience, one Mm. of the things that we were told was, do not attempt to teach during your first years in in the job. your your task is to listen and learn. Mm. And I have come to the conclusion that I have a lifetime's challenge ahead of me to to go on listening and learning because, okay, here's a specific example. I'm a man of fairly strong political convictions. And if I'm speaking to any conservative voters, um, bless you in the name of the Lord, but know that politically I'm not traveling in the same road. That doesn't mean that... There are conservative voters who are not spirit-filled, whose insights I need to hear, and from whom I can learn a great deal. Mm. Mm. And so I am adamantly against condemnation. I am always willing to learn. Even Vladimir Putin needs my prayers. the The idea of the creation of easy bugbears is something which is part of the 24 hours news cycle. Mm. And it is easy to—I mean, just at the moment, today's headlines. Um, Roman Abramovich is um, under the intense scrutiny, and some of his past deeds probably don't bear too much attention. You know, all of a sudden, we've got a new person to hate, and you know, people will will ring their, rub their hands with glee at this prospect. It's a made-up story. I mean, you know. Yes, his crimes have come to light, but I mean, you know, there's a hundred people for whom whose crimes have not come to light, and this kind of polarity is—it serves neither man nor beast. You, you you really do have to to listen and learn. As far as my theological thinking is concerned, I have grown sceptical of my own capacity to understand. I'm less and less willing to to run a, a a theological law, uh, may the Lord forgive, a, a biblical set of rules over anybody's actions, and say, "Thou shalt not pass." You know, this is of you. This is this is of Satan. Mm. I am deeply unhappy with that approach, and I am much more willing to 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 sit and listen than to, to try and to discern what what is driving somebody. Okay, so that does not make me a very good member of 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 the faith in some in some people's eyes, but hey, I'll just have to live with that.
0: <laughs> which I suspect you probably will. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I, I, I think you have touched on something there in, in your answer around perhaps trying to understand people's motivations and why people say certain things or do certain things before you condemn them or before we judge that It is actually worth understanding the context in which somebody lives and does a certain thing before before casting the stone, as it were.
1: Yeah, that's right. By and large, I've given up casting stones.
0: <laughs> was there anything else that you wanted to share with us in terms of times when you feel God has been with you in some way or other?
1: Okay, I'll share, share with you one other thing. Many years ago now, there was a thing called the Fountain Trust. And um, it was to uh, an organisation set up to foster the development of the charismatic renewal in the established churches of Britain. And through the Fountain Trust uh, quite a lot of senior members of the Anglican clergy around the world came to a much more vibrant and immediate and exuberant faith and I attended a pre Lambeth there was the, the Lambeth conference happens every 10 years for senior clerics around the world and the members of the Anglican communion and before one Lambeth conference and I think in 1990 um, there was a, a, a charismatic celebration. At Canterbury Cathedral, of which I was a part, and um, two things happened at that occasion. One was that there was yeah, this is, bear in mind this is Canterbury Cathedral. There was a, a, a unrestrained dancing in the aisles, and the the Archbishop of I think it was the Archbishop of Uganda um, a, a, a very wide gentleman in in scarlet robes, saw me dancing near him in the, in the aisle. And he, he flung his arms around me, bearing in mind that he was about a foot shorter than me, and just swept me off my feet and swung me round and round and around. I've, I've never been quite so intimately involved with a senior cleric before or since. Um, anyway, that was a, a notable, notable experience. But what, the thing that, that lasted from that was that up until that point, I had not received the gift of tongues. That day in Canterbury Cathedral, I received the gift of tongues, a gift which I, I still practice. But I'm very shy about practicing it. And I will only do so when I'm completely certain that I'm not being overheard. And I discovered uh, during the years that my family was still at home and my children were young, that one of the the absolutely certain ways of gaining privacy was to mow the lawn. And so I could mow the lawn with the mower going at full charge and pray in tongues at the top of my voice with no fear of, of anyone overhearing. And so this is something I do to this day, which is that if you see me mowing the lawn, you can be absolutely mortally certain that I'll be praying in uh, tongues.
0: There is a kind of privacy in the noise, I suppose, isn't there? Absolutely, True. yeah. Excellent. <laughs> okay, we're gonna coming towards the end of our, this, this conversation. I'm going to ask you just to share a little bit about how people can find out more about you. Is there, before I do that, is there anything else that you would want to share? Any reflections on your life, your faith, that you think it might be good for people to hear?
1: Well, I will seize the moment to give a couple of uh, mentions of books, if I might. Um, Please do. um, Okay, the first is that, as I mentioned earlier, I did write a book about the experience of walking the Camino de Santiago. And it's a book called Taking My God for a Walk. And um, people have been kind enough to say that they enjoyed reading it. So um, I, I, I would like to commend that to your listeners. And much more recently, in the last few weeks, I've published another book called They'll Never Read That, How to Make Mistakes in Publishing. And this is a book which is intended for anybody who likes the who is en- enjoys the world of books, whether you're a reader or a writer or a publisher or a bookseller. It's a book for the for for, for those who enjoy the world of books, about some of the more catastrophic catastrophic errors I've made in the course of my working life.
0: Well, that's I think there's a certain amount of modesty there. I've read both of these books and enjoyed them immensely, and. Um, you didn't just make errors in your career. No, nothing, not Tommy. <laughs> but I have to say, one of the things that's really jumped out to me when I read both of those books was the, the way in which it sounded like you had gained from the different relationships you had. Not that they'd always been easy, not that it was always smooth, but actually the people that you encountered uh, in the Camino or people you encountered in your career professionally who... Sometimes you wouldn't see eye to eye with them either, but or, you know, or you bumped off them slightly. But you loved them very much, mm. and and they were a blessing to you. And I think that if I think that's a re- that's one of the many things that I got from reading those two books, a real insight into the kind of richness and God givenness of relationships.
1: Yes, absolutely right. I mean, I mean, one of the great things that's happened to me in my life is that I've met so many really, really interesting people. Um, you know, I've made a lot of friends and mm. not very few enemies. And um, I've I've had the privilege of spending time with people who are towering figures of grace and intellect and great fun to be with. And, uh, you know, with a keen sense of the absurd. One of the people, have we got a few moments for me to tell you about one Yeah, yeah, please do. Tell us a couple
0: of stories from that.
1: Well, I'll I'll tell you about one story. Um, This is a story which which is not mine to, to tell, strictly speaking, so I didn't put it into any book, but it's true. My, my boss at Angus Hudson Limited was a chap called Nick Jones. And now you need to imagine Nick Jones as a, a huge guy, about six foot four, six foot five, 20 stone, sort of, you know, a, a big man. In his younger days, he had played hockey for England. Um, he'd also been a professional diver. Um, he was an accountant. He also had a degree in fine arts. So a most unusual individual. Mm-hmm. He could be very severe and very, very formidable. I mean, he's one of these people, as, I, as I, I put it this way in my book, he's somebody who looked as though he he ate a billiard ball for every breakfast. Um, anyway, Nick was a man of, of immense jollity and enthusiasm. But his past life, before his, his conversion to the faith, he had been the ax man for the right-hand man for Robert Maxwell. And there was an occasion when Maxwell had the contract to print the Radio Times. And um, so back in the days when the, 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 the before this is really before digital printing came in, all of the plates for the Radio Times were, lo- were locked and mounted on the drum. And then the print unions went on strike for better, better better wages. And so Nick Jones and Robert Maxwell put their heads together. And uh, Robert Maxwell went to the front of the factory and negotiated with the union leaders. At the back of the factory was a wall, and behind the wall was the print machine. And Nick Jones commandeered a bulldozer, drove straight through the back of the wall, loaded the print machine onto the, into the hopper of the bulldozer, and drove it away. And the radio times was printed on time, and the wages were not increased. Um, so this was the man that I worked for. Um, I mean, so uh, no, I mean, I only have Nick for, Nick's word for that story, but he yeah, I have to say he was a man of veracity. So I believe that I believe that, that led to have been the case. But as I say, this is not a, this is his story to tell. I mean, he's now dead, be, been dead for several years. Sadly, this is not a story you will find in print.
0: No, no. And uh, it'll it'll have to be you that tells it now, won't it? I think. or, or, or just wait,
1: wait until you get to heaven. <laughs> my, old, my old boss, Edward England at, at Hodder's, mm. used to say that um, when he got to the pearly gates and St. Peter put on his bifocals and opened the Lamb's Book of Life, Edward's question would not be, is my name in the in the Book of Life, but who published it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> now You do actually talk about him a little bit in your book. and mean, obviously, um, you know, a guy that you had a lot of respect for and, and somebody that I suspect you learned one or two things from. A huge amount. Okay, so um, yeah, if people are interested in finding out a little bit more about you, Tony, then how would they do that?
1: Okay, if you want to make contact with me, then I'm very happy to give my email address, which is tonycollinsagent at gmail.com. tonycollinsagent at gmail.com.
0: tonycollinsagent at gmail.com. Okay. Yeah. And... Um, are you are you open to people who want to send you material?
1: I mean, the, the critical thing is that I really specialize in Christian books these days. When I set my mm. stall out as an agent, I thought I would be handling all kinds of novels into the general market, for example. But um, my uh, my skills and my contacts are really in the Christian sector.
0: Okay. So if if somebody has a, a manuscript project they're working on, a Christian book of some kind, then you might be interested in seeing that. Sure. Very happy to consider it. That's great. Okay, then. Okay. uh, Thanks very much for your time then, Tony. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Testimony Podcast. You can subscribe to the show on all of the major podcast distributors and also follow us on Twitter at TestimonyCast. If you want to find out more about the Christian faith and connect with someone to talk about your experiences or answer your questions, just go to www.christianity.org.uk from wherever you are in the world. You can also contact us by email at thetestimonycast at gmail.com. That's thetestimonycast at gmail.com. I look forward to sharing more of the stories that matter from people of faith with you soon. Until then, thank you for listening and God bless you.